Hello, and welcome to the podcast. It's Asha here, and I wanted to just get in the start and say thank you for downloading the show. But listen, sometimes podcasts, they're free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So every now and again, I might need to play an ad. To pay Andy and Rachel and Haley and Bree who helped me make this show. So if you hear an ad, I'd like to say thank you more than you know. So here maybe here's an ad, or maybe not. And then you you're gonna hear Sarah Woodhouse say something cool. Thanks for listening to the show. 
Hello, and thank you for listening to Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is a bi-weekly podcast which hopes to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear on this show will help you go, go to bed tonight and go, you know what? Today was a good one. Yeah, it was good. You'll hear something and go, oh, that's I might put that into the program, see how things work. I'm here twice a week. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. Thank you very much to everyone that did email in. Send Osher email at gmail.com. And thank you for the support on Idle Australians, the new podcast I'm doing with James Matheson. Our John Farnham episode was sick, and I'm so very grateful. For those of you who did listen and enjoy uh, listening to conversations about Australian culture and basically telling the story of how we got to now, you can listen to that. Just search for Idle IDLE Australians on um, the podcast app that you're listening to right now. Yeah, just do that. <laughs> it's pretty simple. You can also find me on, oh, look, wherever you are, it's the internet. So let me tell you about my guest today. Dr. Sarah Woodhouse is a research psychologist who specializes in trauma. Her new book is called You're Not Broken, and it's out right now. As somebody who has had my own experience of trauma in my life, I've even been diagnosed with PTSD, I absolutely related to her work. Now, trauma is a part of many of our lives, probably more common than you think. It can manifest as anxiety, as shame, low self-esteem, overeating, undereating, addiction, depression, people-pleasing, social anxiety, so many more things. Trauma can show up in your life as those, as those symptoms. And studies have consistently shown that around 70 to 80% of women will experience a traumatic event at least once in their life. For men, it's up to 90% that you'll experience a traumatic event in your life. So it's going to affect a lot of a lot of people. Trauma can really affect our relationships, not only those with our family, but also our intimate partners, our friends, our loved ones, our work colleagues. And look, to be honest, we all deserve to live a life free of that. No matter what's happened to you, You deserve to be free of that shit. You deserve a life that is not defined by, guided by, and restricted by an event that maybe had very little or even nothing at all to do with you. You are worth living the life you were born to live. You are worth being free of that trauma, which is why, as difficult as it may be, and I can tell you from personal experience, I've had to do it a few times now, as difficult as may be, it's important to face your trauma and work through it because otherwise whatever happened to you or whoever did whatever to you, that kind of, in my experience, in my opinion, they kind of still control the situation a little bit if you're reacting because of that. And at least that's what happened to me. Like every time I do this, I'm letting that person still be in my life, even though it was however long ago or that thing that happened to me still define my life no matter how long ago it was. And I don't want that. I want to make the decisions, not this person who didn't have much to do with me. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Dr. Sarah Woodhouse is on Twitter. She's at SN underscore Woodhouse. Her book is called You're Not Broken. You can find it wherever you get your books. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Sarah Woodhouse. G'day, Sarah. Hello. How do you do? I'm so well. How are you doing? All right, thanks. Good afternoon to you. Where in the world are you, Sarah? I am just north of Sydney. Just, Where are you? I'm just east of Sydney. <laughs> I thought you were going to say really far away then. No, I'm not. No, no, no. That's right. 
Uh, I'm in a room with lots of guitars as well. Are How you curious. Are? I am. They're not mine. They're my husband's. It's important to be in a room with lots of guitars if that's your thing. <laughs> yeah, no, this is the, um, you know, I'm the, I'm the bloke approaching 50 who bought the car that he used to have a poster of. Good for you. You know, that bass there, that's the, that's the dream guitar from when I was a little. Yeah, I wish I could turn it around so you could see my husband. He's just the same as you, just oh. approaching 40. Oh, that's but it's okay. just bought a shed load of like replica guitars. He's just so pumped about them. Yeah, well, look, you know, if it keeps them quiet, uh, and they're like teenagers, uh, middle-aged men. They're like teenagers. As long as they're kept busy, they generally stay out of trouble. <laughs> well, in my in my experience, I'm really grateful we could be here today, Sarah. I'm I'm grateful that we're able to talk about trauma in a way that people listening may not have considered in the past. When people think of trauma, what do they get right? What do they get wrong when they think about trauma? I think most often because of and I get I get why we all do it but I think when I say trauma people immediately think of those big severe experiences you know war assault bushfires floods the big severe experiences that we all think of when we say trauma and of course those things can lead to trauma you know but what I'm trying to do with the book is help people refocus on this other set of experiences life experiences that can also lead to trauma and and they're much more commonplace everyday experiences so they are things like everyday slips and falls and routine medical procedures but they're also what we're really understanding is that a lot of experiences within difficult relationships can also be really traumatic and the definition i use for people that i think is the most helpful is that a trauma is a reaction to any experience that makes us feel overwhelmed threatened and out of control and i feel like with that, it it allows us all to be flexible in terms of what that experience might be. It also helps us all focus on the fact that it's it's not really about the event, it's about the reaction itself. So don't judge the event. However, I'm doing like quote marks for everyone listening, however small the experience might seem, if it led to that reaction in you, then you're at the baseline of the traumatic reaction. Isn't the idea of us experiencing a traumatic reaction though, like you can't have joy without sadness. You can't have love without the risk of heartbreak. I get the feeling that trauma is a part of the human existence. So trying to shut it out as uncomfortable as it is, is you know, for me, it seems like almost to do that would be to deny what it is to be human. That's so beautifully put. I couldn't agree more. And I get why we've all done it, because we first observed trauma in the really extreme cases, didn't we? You know, we first learned about it or observed it in, we used to call it shell shock, didn't we? So we observed it in veterans returning from the war. So we observed it in its most extreme cases. And that has led, I think, to all of us developing uh, a really unhealthy fear of the subject, because the fact is, it is part of life, you know, up to so 70 to 80% of women and 80 to 90% of men will experience a big severe trauma. And then when you consider all of the commonplace, everyday, kind of more relational trauma, that's taking it up to 100%. It is part of life. We have all experienced the traumatic reaction. We're not necessarily all still stuck in it now. It resolves in each of us differently, but it's certainly something that we need to all move towards instead of move away from as we all have been. When did we as a community start to, when I mean, there's a toxic version of it, suck it up, man up, other things that we've heard, that, and that's, that's 
for me, not helpful. But when did we first as a community start to fear trauma or want to back away from the uncomfortable reactions or the uncomfortable realities of what it is to be human? Oh, my gosh, that's a really big question. I mean, I think it's part of living in the modern cultures that we do. I think we are, we teach our children, we were taught that if it's negative and uncomfortable, it's not okay. So I feel like we've developed this culture of that's leading to us all living these really odd kind of inauthentic lives whereby we we can accept the positive sides of ourselves. But again, air quotes for everyone, the negative side of ourselves, which are part of all of us. We are taught that they are bad, wrong, you know, add the adjective of your choice that was the word that was used within your family or within your culture to be frightened of, you know, when actually we, we feel we're humans, we feel that's what humans do. That's what we're here to do. That's how we learn and how we grow. So I would say that it really stems from that cultural inability to be with and move towards uncomfortable, difficult feelings. And therefore, it leaves us all in this really odd space that that doesn't feel quite right, that doesn't feel very authentic. Does that then exacerbate the reactions, the trauma responses that you were talking about earlier? Yes, absolutely. So a big thing that I talk about in the book is that we we all develop, or, or certainly those of us who are living with trauma now have developed avoidant coping. And that's a big reason that trauma perseveres. So all my research was into the perseverance of trauma. So why on earth does it keep going and keep going and keep going? And we end up stuck in these reactionary loops. And there are many reasons for that. There are, uh, you know, in terms of well, lots of things, but yes, absolutely. A core one, a critical one is this sort of inability to be with our, diff- our negative feelings and, and avoid them at all costs. So then that brings, that like opens to the door to a conversation about, you know, how do we avoid them? It's all of those difficult behaviours that so many of us use to, in terms of distracting ourselves with our phone, obsessing about work, uh, compulsively eating, compulsively drinking, uh, you know, take the word compulsive out of anything after it. And you, you're understanding what I'm getting at. It's all about avoidance, avoiding the difficult feelings. And, and that is what keeps us stuck. The perseverance uh, is something I definitely can relate to. Uh, the idea that it just keeps coming around and you get these little flashbacks, whether it be a flashback to, I don't know, getting a cut at work or a, a medical procedure or when someone broke up with you in public in a really shitty way. Why do they keep coming back? Why do they keep revisiting and why do we feel them as if they're happening for real? Essentially, trauma is a memory dysfunction. That's really what trauma is. So so during that initial experience, if we look at that definition that I said, so trauma is a reaction to any experience that makes us feel overwhelmed, threatened and out of control. If you consider what's going on in your nervous system, so as we feel those things, they're like the the human uh, relatable words to explain what's going on as our fight, flight, freeze is triggered. So our nervous system is set off. Our sympathetic nervous system is just flooded with hormones adrenaline, noradrenaline, there's all sorts of stuff going on to, which is the animal in us, you know, it's a very primal physical reaction to potentially help us escape danger. 
right? But the fact is that because especially we're having really a lot of conversations about relational trauma, we don't actually need that level of energy to escape the threat. So it's protective, but also in the context of the modern world, not actually super helpful. So we're flooded with it, with the adrenaline. It's in our body and it's in our mind and it really affects our memory processes. So normal memories we process so we think about them we understand them we apply our own filter and we kind of slot them away in our autobiographical memory trauma memories are not like that they are not where they should be they're not in a kind of whole form they're kind of disparate little bits all spread throughout our mind and our body which is why they're so easily triggered because normal memories are not easily triggered because they're where they should be so they're in our autobiographical memory they're not easily triggered in that sensory way whereas the trauma memory hasn't had all of the sensory information taken out of it because it hasn't been processed. So our senses are very easily trigger that old memory. So essentially that's what's going on. That is absolutely fascinating. I'm having experienced like full body flashbacks where I feel as if the thing is happening to me again to the point where I can feel sensation on my skin or, or something on my tongue or, or something like that. I know ex- exactly what it is you're talking about, but you're saying they're things that haven't been processed. So is the key to freeing ourselves from the perseverance of these traumatic flashback responses when, I don't know, you may have been in an accident in a red car and so every time you see a red car, boom, you're there again. Tell me about how the processing part of it can work. I'm guessing that's something you, is hard to do by yourself. It depends because the level of processing we need to do is different for each of us. So we're, if we're experiencing very intense triggered reactions, so flashbacks, and it's extremely intense, then it's very likely that you're going to need and want some professional support with that. EMDR is fantastic. Um, and that's really all about cognitive processing. But if you think about it, so that that's all to do with sort of eye movement and, and it's, and it, operates on those memories and helps you process yeah, them. Just, just quickly, if anyone's ever been to a therapist and the therapist waved their fingers in front of their faces, that's what EMDR is. <laughs> that's exactly right. Eye movement, that's exactly right. something, something. I can't remember. Eye what, movement, what. desensitization and reprocessing. Don't exactly know why it works, but having called. had it done to me, I can tell you it worked. Yes, absolutely. It's really powerful. It works great. So there's that, but also any processing. Writing in your journal about it is processing, isn't it? Having a conversation with a therapist is processing. So really the level of processing we'll all need depends on the uh, strength of the triggered reaction, I would say. And there are lots of different ways to do it. And also you can process in a very physical way as well. You know, I do a lot of work with somatic psychotherapists and they are processing at a kind of uh, nervous system level. You know, so I did an incredible session with someone about a month ago, myself, I mean, this amazing somatic therapist over in LA. And I was... The thing is, they don't talk about the detail of what went on, of course, because that can be very re-traumatizing. But they're talking about it in a way that almost allows the nervous system to to reset. So we kind of retold the story, but where I was in a position of uh, freedom, power, all of those lovely things. And you kind of keep repeating it, but you have to feel into it. So you really experience how it feels to be in that situation and reframing it. And it allows your nervous system to kind of alter the memory of it. It's, it's so clever. So there's so many different ways to do it. But yes, processing is is critical. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great to know that there's a way out. Uh, I'd love to know for people listening, they may think, well, 
you know, I never suffered abuse as a kid or, you know, I've never been in a relationship that left me scarred or I was never in a terrible accident. I'm pretty sure I'm fine. What are some ways that the effects of trauma can manifest in our lives? What are some things that might be lingering in our lives that we might not realise are the result of either a big trauma or, um, you know, perhaps a, a smaller trauma, unprocessed trauma? Yeah, it's extremely broad. And I think that's one of the main things I was trying to do with the book is help people see that trauma isn't just PTSD. It's not just flashbacks. It can manifest in so many different ways in our mind and body and, you know, in our thinking and in our behaviours. So some of the common things we see are anxiety and anxiety-like symptoms. That's a really common one. Um, Also feeling repetitively and often and strongly feeling a feeling uh, so shame fear anger are very common triggered reactions triggered feelings and I'm not saying that everyone who felt ashamed today that's part of a traumatic pattern I'm saying that if you're experiencing it at strength so it's quite strong and it's repetitive so it's often happening then I would be saying okay well it looks like something's being triggered And also there's the cognitive stuff that's going on. So low self-belief, low self-worth are extremely common signs. Also obsessive worry and obsessive thinking, because often when our thinking spirals, you know, when it just goes off, it's a sign that the fight, flight, freeze response has, has happened and our mind has been flooded with those hormones. So I really encourage people to begin to view their kind of, uh, crazy thinking, you know, when the, the mind just just takes off as a trauma response to, to consider what it may have been in their environment that has reminded them of a past threat and therefore set off an old reaction. Um, and then there's all the behavioural stuff, which I've already covered some of that, all the, the kind of compulsive stuff. Yeah. And and they're, they're a big red flag. You know, if anyone comes to me and says, you know, I'm experiencing or I'm, I'm struggling with compulsive eating or compulsive spending, hmm. compulsive gambling, obsessive worry, all the kind of control behaviours as well. To me, that they're, they're always a big red flag that there may be unresolved trauma there because it's the go-to res- behavioural response. The Yeah, the control behaviour makes perfect sense, particularly if, you know, if uh, the very nature of what you described, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling out of control, you're going to search for control and that can lead to all kinds of things, particularly in intimate relationships. You want some control over a situation. We discussed how painful it can be to re-experience these things and why it kind of makes sense to, like, if you get stung by a bull ant, it makes sense to pull away from bull ants because they're fucking painful. You know, it really hurts to retreat when you see them. What happens when we retreat from exposing ourselves to a trigger or exposing ourselves to something that might remind us of of a traumatic event that we either do or don't remember? Well, that's really interesting. There's quite a mixed opinion on that, I would say. My my personal opinion is that I'm just all, all for gentle and loving. So this idea of exposing yourself to things that could potentially trigger you, for me, in my model of healing, that's not something that, that I did or would encourage. So I think it's protective. You know, you're reacting to that because y- your body is trying to protect you. You know, it remembers the old threat. So I, I think it's more about learning to control the triggered reaction than either be with or avoid our triggers. It's more that it's learning how to control the triggered reaction. That's interesting because I tried that and it did not work for me at all. The only way that I found peace 
was through very difficult but ultimately very effective, very effective exposure therapy. I had oh, that's incredible. Can you tell me more about that? I'm fascinated. Well, I'm, I, I guess I'm a little more than others that I have I was diagnosed with OCD, so the perseverance is uh, kind of a superpower, uh, which can be very <laughs> handy when it comes to getting things done but can be very, very difficult when it comes to negative input going into it. Also, I suffered episodes of uh, psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusions, which is essentially that spiral that you talked about on warp speed. Like mm, absolutely. impossible to break out of and then delusional because then it takes over your version of reality. Now, I tried to normalise those reactions that you spoke of. I tried to be with those reactions, but I, I just couldn't. The only way that I could push through it was to gradually over, you know, from the very tiniest, you know, I didn't take a full tablespoon of sugar at first. It was like a grain, but that was enough. Slowly, slowly, slowly over time, exposing myself to more and more intense triggers and just being with it and trusting that I would cope. And uh, at first it was all guided and then I was able to go and do it by myself. And I still do it every day and it still sucks, but it's the only thing that I've found that has freed me from those spiralling ruminations. And trusting that I could cope when the trigger showed up because the triggers were so intense and I began to fear the fear of the fear of the trigger. Like it just became this horrible cascade of worry about worry about worry and then fear of the pain of the pain of the pain. You know, there's this impossible repetitive loop of, of inescapable worry and trusting that it's okay, I've felt that and I'll, I've been okay again afterwards. Um, that was a huge thing to know that I would be all right. Because I think for me that was a big fear is like if I get triggered really badly, I won't ever come back again. Yeah, I think it, I think it is for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've you've articulated it so beautifully. And I'm I'm fascinated that you you did it in such a I'm presuming you 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 did it in a very kind of structured way, did you? Oh yeah. At first with a psychiatrist. Yeah. yeah it was yeah. Had, had to be guided because I couldn't do it by, by myself. See, that, that's very interesting. And yeah. I would say that most people I've worked with, they do experience that. It, it is the nature of healing, isn't it, from trauma. Hmm. We, we are exposed to our triggers and over time we learn, we can handle them, we yeah. learn how to control the triggered reaction better and we life exposes us, hmm. you know. But that idea of kind of doing it in a very structured way is amazing. I'm so pleased to hear that it worked for you. Oh, uh, yeah. And it, don't get me wrong, Sarah, it sucks. <laughs> like it's it's like if you've had like six weeks off and you go back to your high intensity interval training class and they go right everybody we're going to kick off with 10 sets of 10 burpees like <laughs> you'll be lucky to hold on to your lunch like it's that much like this is fucked but it, you do it because not doing it just means that those thoughts get stronger you know there's a phrase in I'm in recovery as well. There's a phrase in the 12-step program, like when I'm sitting in a meeting, my disease is out in the parking lot doing push-ups, getting ready for the next round. If I don't maintain it, it gets stronger. So I do have to be kind of on top of that. But it is a part of who I am and is a part of my life and what I get to live because of that. My life that I get to live because of that is 100%, 100% worth it. Not everybody has these big traumas that we spoke of. It's not all PTSD. But when it comes to little things, can they stack up? Can little bits of, of trauma kind of stack up to get an equivalent issue in, in your head and the way you, you work? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that comes to mind is the the CPTSD diagnosis, the new CPTSD. Have you heard of that? Uh, So complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's uh, not in the DSM yet. It's not. It's just made up by the publishers of the DSM, so they get to put out another one. I think it might be. (laughs) I know. I wish they'd stop. Like we could do a whole podcast on the DSM because, like, we could. That's a diagnostic statistics manual. Diagnostic statistics manual. Is that it? That's it. Yeah. Diagnostic and statistical manual. Yeah. At the start of when one psychiatrist. The simplified version is one psychiatrist wanted to pass a patient to another psychiatrist and was trying to describe what's wrong with them. And they went, we really need a standardised way to describe what's going on here. But the problem is there's no, it's not like you've got a spiral fracture to your arm. I've got a spiral fracture to my arm. We both have a broken arm. No, these diagnosis is as different as the person, as different as the trauma profile, as is different to how old they are, where they live. You know, it helps, but it's not the be all and end all. I'm so with you. Honestly, we should do another podcast on this because I've got so much to say on the DSM and diagnostics generally. I am just so pleased that is not my world. You know, that's yeah. the reason I didn't, one of the main reasons I yeah. didn't train as a clinical psychologist, it's it just not for me. And I just, when I look at what they're trying to do and it's like they're trying to herd cats. Yeah. It's just an impossibility to take the human condition and put it in boxes. Yeah. I shouldn't use the word nonsense, but it's bonkers to me. It really is. But I understand why oh. they need something because it's patient reported most of the time, you know, and you've got to try and put a name and a category to what's going on with this patient versus that patient. I understand, but there's very little, or you're only relying on evidence that's coming out of the mouth of the person that you're treating who may be seven layers deep and whatever it is they're being affected by. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, of course I see from a management perspective, from a systemic perspective, I get why we need it, but on a human level, yeah, person to person it's it's my, my it's psychiatrist really in la i asked him because i was fascinated i was like what, what's wrong with me tell me what's wrong with me he goes you've got osher syndrome <laughs> <laughs> all right you've got a bit of this and a bit of that i'm going to treat you for this and that's kind of hopefully going to catch that okay okay all right take the drugs <laughs> and i did and it got better sorry we digress so cptsd so we were talking about the stacking up of of perhaps not so grand traumas in that I was in a bank holdup or, you know, had suffered abuse at the hands of a, of a partner or, or a parent or, you know, someone in my life. The big kind of ones that we can quite agree with, but the tiny little bitty ones that might stack up. Do they stack up? They do. And CPTSD is a relief, actually, as someone that works within the trauma field. We've had PTSD for a long time that's been diagnosable. CPTSD is not in the DSM, but it is now widely used within many clinical psychologists, many therapists. You know, we're all beginning to use the language and it reflects exactly what you've just said. So it's a recognition that relational trauma is real and that smaller, doing air quotes again, (laughs) do that a lot, don't I? Smaller traumas stack up on top of each other and can lead to symptoms that are not exactly the same as PTSD, but very similar and as, as equally hard to manage. If we let things stack up, if, if life becomes a, a Jenga tower that will eventually go, I'll deal with that, I'll deal with that, I'll deal with that, I'll deal with that, the whole thing will fall over. What role does self-care and having some sort of disciplined care routine play in stopping those things from stacking to a point where they overbalance? I mean, it's everything. And I would say that that's one of the main impetus between my work and what I'm trying to do is help people see that if we learn about trauma and learn what a traumatic reaction looks like, how it feels, what it looks like in our partner, in our children, in our family, in our friends, that we can absolutely learn the 
coping mechanisms, the, the tools that we need to release and shift through it so that it doesn't end up being an experience that is layered on top of all the others. So it's it's so important. When it comes to, you know, like I said, you know, r- relationships, whether it be someone we work with, whether it be, a, you know, a strange, some like the person we're getting our groceries from, checking out, it seems sometimes like the, the person at the supermarket might say, you know, have a nice day. The person that we work with might say, okay, I'll see you later. But when our wife or partner or a husband or boyfriend or whoever says exactly the same three words, for some reason when those words come from someone that we are intimately caring of and hopefully be cared by, that can really hit us and strangely trigger us. Why, why do we get so triggered by the people that we love the most? You mean triggered in a negative way? Yeah. Why do these things manifest? Like my mates could tell me something and I don't, it does, it's off my back. But if my wife tells me exactly the same words, sometimes it'll make, I'll, I'll flare up and I don't know why, why is it, why is it like that? I would say it's like that because we are replicating our, our past relationships, you know, so, so there are main, so if we talk in terms of attachment, we learn that our attachment models, don't we, whether they're, whether we're securely attached or insecurely attached during childhood. Uh, with our parents or our carers and that attachment bond is we take into romantic relationships and you know relationships with our partners husbands whatever wives uh, when we're older so that's why because we are replicating that bond so they are the closest to us they are who who we are attached to there are what's that phrase in friends there are lobster you know um (laughs) you not heard that in friends Oh, I'm, I... Did you not watch Friends? One of those shows that passed me by. Oh, that's very upsetting to me. Okay. So tell me about, for those people who haven't watched Friends and for, you know, people, let's be honest, under the age of 25 who would have <laughs> no cause to watch Friends because, you know, it was over before they were born. What's the lobster joke in Friends? The lobster joke. So I think it's Joey says to, or one of them says to the other that, you know, lobsters mate for life. So they're talking about the fact that they've got their little lobster claws together. And so it's this little analogy that they use throughout the show oh. to describe when you're with your mate for life. And it's very cute and funny and it's oh. lovely. Little lobsters holding claws, yeah. Rainbow lorikeets mate for life as well. Oh, oh there they're, we go. They're my favourite. There we go. I could have said that. They're no, rainbow a, lorikeet. But they don't then. have the claws and that's the thing. So like, what makes us hold on to these things that are clearly not serving us and might clearly be slowly, slowly destroying the relationship that we're in we know their shit we know we do this thing when it's our turn to stack the dishwasher or whatever but we why do we not want to let it go with our lobster claws why do we hold on to our traumatic reactions (laughs) because we're trapped in them you know it it is trauma and it's it's we've all got that you know if there's a phrase i love you know if you're in recovery you might have heard this one if it's hysterical it's historical I don't know if you've heard on that one. It's great. That's so good. They love things that would go on a T-shirt. Right, you know, exactly. What's the other I, one I love? I love? Uh, let go or get dragged. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that That's one. That's really brilliant. One. They love it. That's really very excellent. <laughs> so, yes, if it's hysterical, it's historical and it's super cheesy, but it's just so true. If you or your partner are reacting, overreacting, oh, but this goes to the same in friendships or family relationships, you know, if anyone's overreacting, you can be certain that it's not about the thing in front of them. It's not about the washing up. It's not about how late you were. It's not about whatever it might be. It's triggered something from their past. And 
our relationships with our partners or with close friends, I would say, or with family, we're playing out, we're playing out, we're repeating and repeating and we keep repeating until we don't. We keep repeating until we stop it. So awareness is always the first step, right? Insights and awareness. And that's what the book's all about. I'm hoping to give people those aha moments of like, that's me, like that's going on in my relationship where I'm triggered, I'm reacting like this, they're reacting like that, or whatever it might be, whether whether it's about health or work, and give people those insights because that's the doorway, isn't it? Once we can see it, once we've... Because all this is going on subconsciously, right? So when I was talking about trauma being a, a memory dysfunction, it's not like we consciously think... I'm looking at my lip gloss here. So it's not like you consciously think, wow, that reminds me of my lip gloss when I was four and such and such happened. It's a subconscious process. So what we want to do is bring it to consciousness, you know, and, and that is as simple or the first step certainly is as simple as having the conversations of reading the books, of, of becoming aware of that dynamic between you both and calling it out, you know, calling a spade a spade. And that's the doorway, I would say. When we do get into relationships and so one of my exes once told me, and I was like, wow, isn't this so interesting how we both have, you know, shitty childhoods to talk about. And she said, love is commonality of pain. And I was mm. like, oh, man. <laughs> wow, yeah. Do we consciously or even subconsciously seek out people who have a similar trauma history? I would say so, yeah. I mean, trauma is inherently about repetition. You know, that that's what it is. We, you know, like I just mentioned, we, we will just keep repeating. There is no way out of this. The, you know what's another phrase the only way through it is through it you know that is absolutely true of trauma you we do keep repeating and we seek out people to allow us to heal I believe to allow us to heal you know someone else would be saying it's trauma bonding and and I get that but also our triggers and our trauma are are the gateway to healing that repetition is the gateway to healing that you know the insights that I just spoke about so yes we do we certainly do yeah when, when we do get into a new relationship, it's like I think about this. There's not really many. We all generally download a PDF these days, but in the glove box of your car, there'll be an instruction manual that's, you know, as thick as a, a Bible. You know, it'll be, you know, three centimetres thick and it'll be 500 pages long. When we get into a new relationship, we generally tend to only give the person the cover first and then very slowly we'll... <laughs> give them like a page at a time of our instruction manual, you know, and that can be good or it can be bad. You know, sometimes there's things that you'll find out a year later when it's like, if you'd told me this when we met, we could have saved ourselves a lot of resentment. When you're meeting someone, how do you tell them, so listen, this thing happened in my past. If you're not home when you say you're going to be home, just text me. Okay, like how, how do we have those conversations without sounding like a, a weirdo or someone who's trying to be controlling? How do we have those conversations? First up, it's really important that we do. And second, although it's important that we do, it's really important that we don't do it until we feel safe enough within that dynamic and within that relationship. Because I think especially those of us who carry trauma, there's often an issue with boundaries. There's, there, there can be an issue in terms of kind of, you know, giving too much information and, and being unclear, you know, especially if we think about relational trauma, just being unclear of where the boundaries are. So I would always tell people to uphold your boundaries until you feel safe. But for some of us who are very avoidant, you can end up, you know, making that decision and then still having not mentioned it three years later. So it does take bravery 
I talk about this in the book, it takes courage. We all need to have the courage to, when we feel ready, when we intuitively trust that the person sitting in front of us is, is trustworthy, you know, is that this is a healthy relationship and this is something I want to move forward with. We all need to have, have those conversations. We really do. And I would say, and their response tells you everything. I have found in my experience, the interesting thing about intimate relationships is that as difficult as it is to be vulnerable within them and as much as they are affected by past traumas, I have never found as much healing, particularly around relationship-based trauma, as I have within a relationship. It is very, I found, very difficult to heal any kind of codependency or things like that when you're not in a relationship. It is being in a relationship and working with a new pattern of behaviour inside a good relationship with great boundaries that I, that that healing is there. But you're right, it does take a lot of communication for for that to happen. And it's not like a we did it and we fixed it and now we move on. It's kind of like a thing you kind of will always be doing, isn't it? Absolutely. And one of the chapters in the book is how trauma affects our relationships. And it was by far the hardest to write Mm -hmm. and the most rewarding. I mean, I I wrote it and rewrote it so many times because relationships are so complicated, you know, they're gloopy, messy things. So I was so determined to give people clarity, you know, so I'm very clear about relationship triggers, very clear about relationship reactions to those triggers and kind of really pull it apart from for people. But it's funny, you reminded me that there's a section in that chapter that's called, I think, uncomfortable is okay. And just really encouraging people that providing the relationships themselves aren't traumatic and abusive, you know, providing there's somebody we we trust, a healthy relationship the growth will come from being within that relationship. And that doesn't, ha- I'm not talking about just re- romantic relationships. It can, we, we grow within friendships. We grow within family relationships, providing they're the right kind, but we have to be in it to heal relational trauma. And, and it can even be with a therapist, yeah. you know, loads of people begin to heal relational trauma within that safe, safe relationship. I did. I worked with, I worked with my therapist for five years five years, not weekly appointments, but it was, wasn't far off. And through that, I was able to trust. I learned to trust. I learned to communicate. I learned the basics of relationships with that person. So the only way to heal relational trauma is in relationships, but it doesn't have to be in romantic relationships. Start where you feel comfortable. Right. So as long as there's a, a relationship that has good boundaries and is safe, that relationship yes. could be a friend or the therapist. It is, re, as you mentioned earlier, it's trying to not repeat the same patterns. If we do find ourselves repeating patterns, it's very easy to get down on ourselves. What do we do if we find ourselves going, oh, I'm doing that thing again? <laughs> what do we do if we find ourselves repeating things that we know we shouldn't be doing? Give me a call and I'll go, yeah, me too. High five. (laughs) Just nothing but self-compassion because we're human and that's part of it. You know, I I would say that's the first point is always self-compassion. If you come at it with anything other than that, you are going to exacerbate an already uncomfortable situation Mm. and you're going to get kind of stuck in the reaction. Compassion pulls us out of the traumatic reaction. Self-compassion pulls us out of it. Inner critic stuff, real self-hatred keeps us in it so self-compassion is is always the first step and in terms of practical tools 
there are so many ways and I would say it depends what it is we find ourselves repeating um but very often it's about learning to be present you know learning to be more present learning to be with our feelings and usually or often if we can kind of strengthen that mechanism of of being able to be present and really allow our feelings and be with them we over time can avoid more or are better at avoiding those kind of patterns and loops but there are so many different ways we can break the patterns the patterns can manifest in our behavior they can manifest in you know the way we stack a dishwasher the way we don't tidy up after ourselves all kinds of things and one of the things that i'm personally quite worried about is I see and it's full on when they're really young but they do it when they're older too we've got two kids one's 17 one's year and a half they don't do anything you ask them to do (laughs) they just do everything that they see you do they copy everything it's just what we are as humans would that's why YouTube dance videos are so great because people just copy (laughs) each other and I'm really worried about passing on inadvertently or unknowingly passing on my own shit to these kids what can we do as parents to try not to pass on these patterns and these loops to the little people in our lives we're all worried about that i've got three kids and i honestly i bet you money mine listen worse than yours (laughs) (laughs) absolutely Uh, and they are just copying me and there's been moments so my eldest is eight got eight six and three And there have been very, very painful moments where I have realised that inadvertently I am passing on my trauma to them. And my response and the response I tell everyone is, A, so the compassion piece, like it's okay, you're only human, you're doing your best. We can only do this when we can do it. And B, I do my work. I do what I need to do. So most recently I'm working with an incredible somatic therapist. So by learning how to kind of regulate my body better I'm helping them regulate so I'm doing my work I'm, I'm processing I'm it's all we can do yeah it's do, do your work do what you need to do and I know that <laughs> I don't know maybe that sounds overwhelming to people but it's also incredibly healing somebody said to me once that you know being a parent is, is one of the most spiritual things you can ever do and it took me a beat to know what they meant I was like, what are you talking about? I could just do the washing up and white bums. and But the growth that I have experienced from being a parent is, I, I, well, I can't even express it. And it has been so painful, so incredibly painful. But I have always committed to the idea of parenting consciously and therefore not shying away when I see, as you've mentioned, when I can see that they're replicating a certain behavior or, you know, copying a, a pattern of mine, not shying away from it, calling a spade a spade and then doing the work I need to do to heal myself and trust that as I heal, they'll get the mother that they need. There it is. Just having the trust that if I see the kids do something that I know is not great in me and I see them do it, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to now model the behaviour that I need them to do. I can't tell them to not do that. They're just going to do what they see. You're right, you know, and I think about how do I keep these kids from pain. It's the same with, you know, not wanting my youngest to, you know, hurt himself when he's at the park and not wanting my oldest to have a heart broken. I don't want my kids to feel pain, but to not feel pain is to deny them what it is to be alive absolutely and that is also a part of parenting it's a shit part of parenting it's to 
know that your kids are going to hurt and they're going to feel hurt. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of it. You don't want them to, but it is part of being human. And I guess you can only hope that there'll be, you can be there to help them grow because of that pain. Absolutely. We talked about it's not so much the event, it's how we react to the event. How can we, through modelling behaviour for them, how can we help our kids deal with things that could be turned into trauma that they then carry with them and how can we help them deal with it in the moment and process it in the moment so it doesn't carry through their lives? Yeah, trauma is part of life and our kids are going to experience it. They, they most likely already have and as a parent, Although I understand that that concept is deeply frightening for a lot of people, trauma is part of life. It's part of being human. So accepting that our kids are not only going to feel pain in their lives, but they are going to experience traumatic reactions is really key. And I firmly believe, really, I I get tingly as I say that because I, I feel so passionate about it. The trauma itself is not the problem. Okay, that our reaction is often the problem. It's okay. We can't and we mustn't be afraid of these life events because they are part of life. What we need to all learn to do is how to hold ourselves and our kids and anyone else we love through them. So it's our reaction that matters. So it's learning, as you say, how to respond to our kids if we notice they've gone or potentially could have a traumatic reaction. There are two key elements of that, I would say. The first is about validation and the second is about co-regulation. So when I say validation, it's really critical, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, that as a parent, we validate their feelings and their experiences. And that just means really acknowledging them. So not dismissing them. Some amazing things go on psychologically when we do that. It also makes them feel safe because they are seen and heard. So if your kid comes home from school and says, Melissa's stupid, I've I hate her Um, she wouldn't sit next to me at lunch we don't say oh that's nothing come on it's no big deal you know Melissa loves you what do you want for dinner we we repeat back to them we validate their experience and in doing so because we are so critical to them in in their little world we help them develop an identity We, we allow them to feel seen and heard so we would just say you sound really mad you didn't like it. It really upset you that Melissa didn't sit, sit next to you or, or whatever you might say. We're just repeating. I mean, I sound like a parrot with my kids sometimes. I'm just constantly repeating back to them, validating their experience because I know the damage that comes from not feeling seen and heard and understood as a kid. So as a parent, we're always searching for the cleverest thing to say. It's not about that. Validate, say what you see, say what they're feeling. Don't try and fix don't try and manoeuvre, don't try and coerce, don't, certainly don't belittle, don't dismiss, you know, just say what you see. You know, you're feeling angry. Wow, you're feeling really angry right now. I see you. Well, you've got so many big feelings right now. You know, it's that validation piece that is so, so critical and really it can intervene in in the traumatic reaction. So that's the first part of it. And the second part is co-regulation. So as a parent, what we need to do, and it's it's quite hard, is if there's a moment when you can see our, our our kids really hurt or really overwhelmed, really feeling threatened, whatever has happened, you, you know, they've had a really big reaction to something. We need to put the, you know, the oxygen mask on us first, essentially. So it's so important that we regulate. So we down regulate because what happens is 
they they shoot up so all their body just floods with hormones and we do the same we like we match their intensity and we we need to learn over time allowing ourselves to practice how to do the opposite so we feel ourselves go up and we pull ourselves back down and then we can move towards them you know essentially we need to become a rock you know we need to be their rock and we know that a regulated body helps a dysregulated body re-regulate. So they're the two main things I would say to parents, but to anyone, you can apply that to your partner or your mum or friend, whoever. They're the two things that we really need to be thinking about is validation and this idea of co-regulation. So by helping myself calm down, I'm helping them calm down. Yes, 100%. If you can go towards them with slow breathing, yeah. If you can go towards them feeling grounded, feeling present. Mm. So a traumatic reaction pulls you out of the, the moment, doesn't it? Mm. We, we just go. Yeah. So what they need to do, they need to be anchored back into the moment. And your regulated body, maybe just a hand on their shoulder or a cuddle, yeah. feeling that regulation, that sense of safety is so, so powerful. It's okay to do in an intimate relationship with someone that you can touch uninvited but because the trust is there with a you know a family member trickier to do at work you know we spend so much time at work and often we're paid to usually in many jobs put it on the line we're paid to take big risks we're paid to be at the coalface we're paid to get on the phone and chase you know debtors we're paid to deal with a lot of heavy emotion through our day how do we how can we regulate in those situations or how can we keep ourselves safe and have you know uh, healthy responses to those otherwise, you know, tricky moments at work? I mean, in terms of that co-regulation piece, I would say that although you're not going to go up to a colleague and wrap your arms around them, just, um, oh, there's some, I've seen some incredibly powerful footage of uh, so social workers who also, of course, can't touch children. Yeah, of course. So they will regulate and then they simply go and sit next to them. Uh-huh. That's all it is. It's a, it's a quiet witnessing presence. That's all we need to do. So first up, I'd say that is just, although, and, and, you know, if you know them well enough, maybe you might put a hand on the shoulder or something, Hmm. but just simply sitting near someone and allowing your energy to pull them back into the moment is enough. It's not about touch. And in terms of what we can do, you're so right. I've read a chapter, so how trauma shows up at work. And it was such a joy to write it because it was new. You know, it was, it was a fascinating thing. I had some incredible conversations and learned so much and you're so right, you know, triggered reactions, all of our old triggered self-limiting beliefs, they can really show up at work. You know, work involves conflict, criticism. It's all about survival. You know, we're only there to pay the bills, right? So it's inherently about survival anyway, because we're there for money and it's got the pecking order there. So it's really, it can be a real hotbed for trauma. So learning ways to regulate while we're at work is really important. And recognising that when we don't, we're going to react from a place that and end up making decisions that don't serve us. You know, I spoke to so many people who ended up quitting for, you know, just walking out of a job because they were triggered. You know, the boss spoke to them in a certain tone of voice, which later they realised reminded them of their father, putting them down when they were younger. They were triggered. They quit. Out they go. You know, so we all need to be mindful that when we're triggered, we detach from our strongest adult self, who we need to be at work. That's who we need to be standing strongly and firmly in our adult. And we're thrown back almost like we all become kids, you know. So I would just really urge people to watch out for that. 
So yeah, learning how to regulate and recognize that reaction is really important. A simple thing is, is polyvagal breathing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Tell people about polyvagal breathing. Polyvagal breathing is changing the world one person at a time. It's amazing. So polyvagal breathing. So this is uh, Dr. Stephen Porges work. And what he's realized is that there is a central nerve here called the vagus nerve. I don't know if you can see me. So it runs, I mean, it runs essentially all the way down your face, all the way down your neck, through your chest, all the way down to your gut. And what he, he's realized is that this nerve is the nerve that's responsible for our freeze response. So it kind of slams on the brake during a trauma, but it's also the key way into the parasympathetic nervous system. So when we're starting to feel aroused, when we're starting to go up and we can feel the adrenaline going, maybe we're worried we're about to get triggered or we can feel ourselves getting triggered. One of the quickest uh, and most effective things we can do is stimulate this nerve. And quite simply, we can use polyvagal breathing. And I, I'd really recommend that people Google it because there's so many different tricks out there. But a simple one is just to breathe into your belly for the count of four, long, slow breaths in, making sure that your belly is kind of coming right out. It's coming right down into your belly because it's got to move through the diaphragm and then breathing out for the count of eight. So it's that double count. So it's that sort of that ratio. That's what you're looking for. Whether you're using five, 10 or three, six, it really doesn't matter. But I tend to use four, eight. And it's important that you do it slowly and to start off, it might feel a little bit jarring, but it will become smoother and smoother as you do it. The repetition and the count matters. And what's happening is that you're stimulating your diaphragm and it's the stimulation of the diaphragm that then stimulates the vagus nerve, which sort of switches on the parasympathetic system and regulates your nervous system. And it's so simple that people, I can see people kind of dismiss it, but this is a key hack. So, so a lot of very kind of high power people that I know who have to do incredible stuff, you know, talk in front of thousands of people, use this before they have to go on. It's simple because it's just breathing, but it is life-changing if you practice it. I use it probably five times a day and I don't just use it when I am feeling elevated to calm myself and kind of kick in that parasympathetic uh, system. I also just use it because the more we practice it, the better that nerve works. So it's also something that we find becomes more effective over time as we practice. We're going to get back to the show in a moment. I may have to play an ad here, but before we do, if conversations about having a jolly long, hard look at what got you to where you are and seeing how many of those things are still working for you and being brave enough to go, how could I possibly do things differently to give myself a different outcome, give myself more choices? If those kind of conversations are the kind of things you're into, you may be really into episode 369 of this show with Lane Beachley, uh, widely regarded as the most successful female surfer in history. The things that she learned to get her six consecutive world titles and, and the seventh, actually, before she then retired. Uh, the things that she learned about herself, about how to face the things that were holding her back, are truly revelatory. And here's just a little taste of that conversation. If we stay stuck in how, we stay stuck in fear. When we're in fear, we tend to procrastinate. And then that leads to questioning. Is it even worth doing? Is it something that I want to do? Like, I'll question my ability to do it. Can I do it well enough? And so I'm comparing myself either to someone else that can do it better or a future or past version of myself that couldn't do it. And so therefore that validates my belief that it's not worth doing. 
And that belief then feeds all these rationalizations, which is a whole bunch of rational lies. And so that just procreates itself. And you stay in this stuck cycle of fear. And that is all fueled by asking the question, how am I going to do it? When you reframe the question and ask yourself, why do I want to do it? That creates clarity, which then fuels your discipline, which then increases your levels of empathy, which then makes you feel more focused and fulfilled, which then gives you more clarity, discipline, empathy, and focus. That's fun. So if you find yourself in a state of fear, even on days when you don't feel like doing it, go back to your why. You're like, okay, this is why I'm doing it. That's episode 369 of Better Than Yesterday with Lane Beachley. You can find it right here in this podcast feed. Just have a scrolly scroll back and have a listen. Now, we're going to get back to the conversation in just a second. You may hear an ad, you may not. Let's see what happens. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it came to writing the book... The title does kind of say it all when it comes to how we might believe in ourselves and what we might believe might be going on with us. Why is it that we believe this stuff is happening to us? Why is it that we feel we're broken? The book's called You're Not Broken, but why do we feel that we're broken? So trauma, essentially, it, it messes with every part of us. And in in the moment or, or in, in the sort of initial moment after the trauma, our beliefs can be really, really affected. So you remember I said that our, our brain floods with all those all those hormones and it affects our memory processing. It also affects our beliefs. And it's at those during those times that we develop or can develop really unhelpful self-limiting beliefs. And that's why I'm saying to people validation is so important because often those of us who believe and carry those kind of beliefs we're broken we're bad we're fundamentally damaged you know I've heard often I'll hear beliefs of of that nature they're often people who weren't validated at the time who didn't have the support around them that they needed who didn't have people there saying I see you I hear you I get it you experienced that that's not okay you're feeling angry I get it they weren't getting that feedback so they go inwards and they blame themselves you know, that's, that's, it's very common in those that I speak to. But the idea that it's permanent and we're always going to feel this way and this is how we'll be until we die, that is in many ways, in my experience at least, that's a symptom of this, isn't it? And it's not true. Exactly. It's a symptom. You, you, you've explained it very well. What I say to people is it's the trauma talking. So it isn't, it isn't their belief. It feels like it is, but it isn't. It is literally the trauma. So it's a symptom of that moment when you felt threatened, overwhelmed and out of control and you were left with this feeling. But as you heal, as you grow, you will 
transform that belief or at least be able to put it in its proper place and see it for what it is. And the good news is like there's treatment. It's not like we don't know how to fix this. Like if you're relating to the stuff that we're speaking about today, there's plenty of ways out and there is hope that it's not always going to be this way, but it's going to try and convince you that it's always going to be this way, but that's not real. That's exactly right. And that's exactly why I called it what I did is that people are adamant that they cannot heal. I'm inundated with messages over social media and to the website. What are you talking about? You don't understand. I'm broken. There's nothing you can do to help me. And I know it's the trauma talking. And I just lovingly hear them. You know, I get it. I totally get it. I felt that way for a really long time too. And and even when I say, but there are all of these treatments, there are all of these options, there's all of this support. There are these millions of people over here that demonstrate that you can heal and not just heal, but you can grow. You know, you can you can experience post-traumatic growth from your traumas. So there are all of these people, even when I, you know, here's all the evidence, here's all the evidence, it is not enough to counter that belief. And the only thing really that can counter it is doing the work hmm. and then looking back and going, oh, okay, it wasn't true. <laughs> and that gives me great, great hope because I know what it feels like to be stuck in it. I know what it feels like that it's permanent. And I know how powerful those thoughts can be and they can convince you that you're not worth it and you're not worth getting help and it's not worth doing the work. But as I described earlier, the work feels like work, but it's worth it. <laughs> it's not like it gets better. You know, the way I like to talk about it, you don't accidentally get a six-pack abs. You get six-pack abs by really being very careful at what you eat and working out every day. You know, similarly, you don't accidentally have good mental health. You don't accidentally have good mental health. You don't accidentally recover from trauma. You work at it, but then the life you get to live because of it is worth it. But I can't do the work for you. Sarah can't do the work for you. That's it. You do the work. And I loved what you said before, because I think you hinted at right at the beginning, you know, it's, it's also, it is about daily action. Hmm. You don't just do six months of therapy and then crash on. Hmm. You do, you, well, you do whatever kind of work it is that you need, and then you make changes hmm. and you have to show up for yourself every day. You have to make small promises to yourself and keep them. You know, it's that personal responsibility piece, that accountability piece yeah. that I think I think people don't like talking about. You know, I think people, all of us want a quick fix, right? Yeah. Okay, I'll do three sessions of such and such and then I'll crash on and I'll carry on doing exactly the way I was before. It's not like that. You know, you do your work and then, and then you change. You make the changes you need. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot to talk about. I'm, I'm so glad we got the chance to speak with each other today because we've covered something that is so relatable. People may not realise they're carrying it with them. They might not realise the junk they've got in their pockets that they've, they've had with them since they were kids or from their last relationship. They may not realise that when they're arguing with their husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, they're actually arguing with someone from two relationships ago or their dad. You know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> And it's not fair on anyone because none of those things that you're saying or feeling belong in that moment. None of them no, do. No, it's not. And I think that's the problem is when you do this work, it, it frees, it, it affects everyone because you stop blaming other people. Oh, you know, yeah. it's, it's really powerful because you take responsibility. So instead of looking around in the environment and pointing a finger, you don't blame yourself at all. It's not about blaming yourself. It's just recognizing that the lashing out and the pointing is unfair. I can't thank you enough, Sarah. Have a, um, a cracking day. Thank you for taking uh, some valuable time out of kid looking after day. 
<laughs> they're, they're somewhere in the house. They've been very quiet, haven't they? Oh, that's the dangerous part, isn't it? <laughs> yes, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> and they're quiet. Thanks heaps for your time. I'm really grateful you came on the show today. It's been so great. Thank you so much. Okay, so that was Dr. Sarah Woodhouse. You can find her on Twitter at S for Sierra, N for November, underscore Woodhouse. Her new book is called You're Not Broken. Get it where you get your books, all right? Thanks for everybody who listened to the show. Thank you for listening to the show and thank you for checking out Idle Australians. Just search Idle Australians in your podcast feed and uh, you'll find me and James in an old black and white photo and Jimmy giving the finger. Big thanks to the team who helped me make this show today where all your advertising money goes to to help pay these beautiful people. Andy Marr on audio production, Bree Steele on research, Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, and Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider. Find his streams, find his Spotify's. They're great who made the music today. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on Thursday with Jim for Idle Australians. I'll be back here on Friday. Until then, wear a mask, stay safe, wash your hands, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com style. 